right. How's everybody doing this morning? Good to see you guys. Good to see all your faces here. Some friends, uh, some longtime friends who have just never been here. Uh, some people we haven't seen in a while. Some of our own family who have been, let's just say, predisposed for a while. You know who you are. And uh, it's good to see you here. Um, but uh, hey, glad and our sister congregation out in uh, Tanzania, Pastor Paphras and, and you guys out there, welcome. If I knew welcome in Swahili, I would say that, but I don't. I could make it up. You guys wouldn't know. Jumbo. Okay. They say jumbo. If it's wrong, it's not my fault. Okay. I, you're probably right. Hey, welcome. Glad, glad you guys are here. Um, We're in the Gospel of Mark. I'm going to get right into it, but uh, just really quickly before I do, today is, is Baptism Sunday. Um, baptisms are such an incredible experience. Pastor Gabe talked about it already, but I just cannot emphasize it enough. There is nothing better than seeing somebody come up out of that water, a new creation in Christ. And that public acknowledgement of that moment, surrounded by family, surrounded by friends. So I want to urge you all, I know in the, in the mix of everything, we didn't maybe get the word out about the, the potluck and the barbecue as well as maybe we could have. I don't care if you brought anything or not. The way I always do it is I bring enough for everyone. So there's enough down there. So don't say, I didn't bring anything. I can't stay. Please stick around. Have a hamburger, a hot dog, some chips, whatever it is, and enjoy the the moment of baptism with us. Um, That being said, I'll talk about it again at at the end. But one of the most exciting things are those spontaneous decisions where you've never, you didn't come here this morning planning to, to dedicate or rededicate your life to Christ here. But that moment, you just go, I, I don't care. However I'm dressed, I'm getting in the water. And I can tell you later on when it's 95, it's going to feel nice. So I, I might have 30 baptisms spontaneously, right? And that's okay. Um, that's okay. But I'll put out the offer, and I want you to start praying about it right now. If you feel the Holy Spirit tugging you, that you should do that. Um, I want you to heed that word from the Holy Spirit, and we'll make a way for that to happen, okay? All right, so let's get into the message. We're in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus the Servant Messiah. If you haven't been with us, the reason that we're in the Gospel of Mark, number one, I just love the Gospel of Mark. It's so amazing, but it focuses on the servanthood of Jesus, and not just the servanthood of Jesus, but the fact that He can do the things, he was empowered to do the things he did, and then he delegated that responsibility and that power to the disciples along the way. Um, That was all done through the power of the Holy Spirit. And the point of of this teaching, and most of it in this gospel, is that that very same Holy Spirit that Jesus was able to, to utilize to, to do all those miracles, that we saw the disciples do all of those miracles throughout, that Holy Spirit lives in you. And you have that very power. So we look at all the miraculous things that happen in the Gospel of Mark. We've been talking about it for, for months. And rather than to just say, oh, wouldn't that be cool? What I want you to have is this mindset that that power lives in me. And when the Holy Spirit directs me to lay hands on somebody and heal them or, or raise them from the dead or restore sight or drive out demons, that power lies within you. 
If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you have the Holy Spirit and you have that power in you. So when I'm talking about all these things and we're teaching our way through the book, I don't want you just to say, hey, that Jesus was somebody, wasn't he? But you was, yes. But the idea is that you have that very same power. <coughs> Excuse me. So let's get into this. So we've been working our way through. Um, and the latest part, we find Jesus and his disciples, they're in the temple. They're in the temple courtyard. And Jesus is getting challenged one after another after another. Uh, different groups of people are challenging Jesus. They're trying to trap him. They're trying to get him to say something that they can refute and say, look, he's not who he says he is. They're trying to trap him into something that's outright illegal, like insurrection, so they can arrest him. Um, they're trying to trap him in basically any way that they can. And they're not having an awful lot of success. Last week, we saw uh, this group of, of Pharisees. Scripture tells us that it was disciples of the Pharisees. So they were kind of undercover. And then this group of Herodians who were loyal to Herod and then to Rome who were trying to trap him. They weren't having very good luck. So what we see is in succession here, we have the priests, uh, the scribes, the elders, the disciples of the Pharisees, the Herodians. They're all taking their turn trying to trap Jesus into something and nobody's having any success. So right now, we get one more chance. It's one more chance of a group trying to challenge Jesus. But they have their own agenda. And we're going to talk about that. So where we are, grab your Bible. We're in Mark 12, 18 to 27. It's a small section. So if you have your Bible, follow along. What I'm going to do is I'm going to read that since it's not very long. I'm going to read it all the way through front to back and just listen. In your mind, picture the scene in the temple courtyard. Various groups of people hanging out. There's several groups of people over here who've already tried and failed, but they're hanging out. They want to see how this goes. Um, and then people challenging them. So it's kind of this hustle and bustle of the, of the temple courtyard and then these direct accusations. So here we go. Mark 12, 18 to 27. Some Sadducees who say there is no resurrection came to Jesus and began questioning him, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves behind a wife and does not leave a child, his brother is to marry the wife and raise up children for his brother. There were seven brothers, and the first took a wife and died, leaving no children. The second one married her and died, leaving behind no children. And the third, likewise. And so the seven together left no children. Poor woman. That's my ad. Doesn't say that in scripture. <clears throat> Last of all, the woman also died. Verse 23, in the resurrection, which one's wife will she be? For each of the seven had her as, her as his wife. Jesus said to them, is this not the reason you are mistaken, that you do not understand the scriptures nor the power of God? For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. But regarding the fact that the dead rise, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the burning bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. You are greatly mistaken. All right, so that's, that's the little interaction that we have right there. Let's pull it apart. How many different 
in that section, how many different concepts or questions can you think of that are in there? How many different things are in there? I mean, there's a lot of different questions that they're posing here and things for us to chew on, right? Like, like first of all, um, are there angels? Are there angels? Um, if you've been married multiple times, who will you be with in heaven? Will you be married at all in heaven? If you're married here, will you be married in heaven? Will you even know or recognize your loved ones? Think about that. Anybody ever think about that? When I get to heaven, will I recognize my loved ones? And then maybe the most important, I think, is there resurrection of the dead? All kinds of questions that are contained in that one little chunk of Scripture, right? We're going to get into them, and let's talk about it and see what Jesus is teaching here. Before we do, though, I want to clarify the difference between these different groups of accusers, because we've seen, again, the priests, the high priests, the elders, the Pharisees, the Sadducees now. Um, we've seen all these different groups. I want to make sure that they're clear in our minds, because each one of these groups has a different agenda. In fact, most of these groups don't get along with each other. Um, they have a different reason for attacking Jesus, and they come about it a different way. And so understanding who they are helps us to see why maybe they attacked Jesus in the way that they did. So let's talk just real quickly here. Priests and the high priests, because remember, those were kind of the first ones that were challenging Jesus, right? Wanting to know about his authority in the temple. Uh, first of all, most of them, most of the priests and high priests in that day were Sadducees. They were part of the Sadducee um, group party, denomination, sect. Caiaphas was the high priest at this time. We hear about Caiaphas all the time, right? We also hear about a high priest named Annas. And Annas was actually Caiaphas's um, father-in-law, I believe. He was no longer in power, but he had a whole lot more prestige. And in fact, when people had a problem, they usually went to him first, much to the irritation of Caiaphas. Um, but priests... Their primary job were, were temple affairs. That was their primary job. They were to officiate any one of a number of offerings that would happen at the temple under the law of Moses. There were, um, there were burnt offerings, meal offerings, dough offerings, sin offerings, guilt offerings, uh, uh, peace offerings, drink offerings, incense offering, thanks offerings. Uh, the release of the scapegoat would happen. All these are teachings for another time. But throughout the year, and their job was basically to make sure that all happened the way that it was supposed to happen in the temple. Primarily, that was, that was their daily duty. Now, scribes, talks about priests and scribes almost in the same, um, same sentence, but they're not the same person or type of people. Scribes, scribes were, the closest thing we could call were almost lawyers. We could almost say that scribes were lawyers, although technically they weren't, but they had knowledge of the law. They could draft legal documents, uh, marriage contracts, divorce contracts, loans, all the things that we have today, inheritance, mortgage, sale of land, all those sorts of things the scribes would do. Every village had at least one scribe who could help them kind of administer those sorts of things. They were generally a lot more educated than the priests in general were. Um, elders. Elders were another group. The word elders translates as presbyteros. Um, usually, they were a member of the Sanhedrin, 
right? Usually, not always, but usually. The Sanhedrin, by the way, is the Supreme Court. That would be the the Jewish uh, Supreme Court, essentially. Um, But they were made up of older men in each village, and although they didn't have any any legal authority, they held authority over their own village and over their, their group in particular. Now, Pharisees, we talk about Pharisees a lot, right? Pharisees were very much studying Scripture. They, were, they did their best. It was their life's mission to uh, adhere to the Scripture, the law, right, as, as exactly and as thoroughly as they could. They spent their life studying it. Their belief, we always paint them as bad guys, but their belief was that the reason Israel kept suffering judgment after judgment after judgment is because they had failed to adhere to the law as well as they could. So their job, I'm going to make sure all of you adhere to the law as best they can. And they kind of come off as buttheads an awful lot. But, that's, but that was their heart behind it. The reason Israel's being judged is because we're not doing it right. And so that's it. Here's the thing, though. They thought if this much law is good, this much law is better. And so since Moses only gave them this much law, we're going to add a whole bunch of other tiers of law. So they added all kinds of just verbal and oral tradition law to that. In other words, nobody could ever be sure they're getting it right. Only the Pharisees knew. So that's where they were. Now, the Herodians, if you remember from last week, were more of a political party. They were more of kind of a political sort of go-between between the Jews and Rome. And they were they were especially dedicated to Herod and the line of Herod. They had no interest in a, de- a descendant of David being on the throne in Israel. All they really wanted was somebody, a descendant of Herod, Herod the Great. That's who they wanted. So they were more political. Now, the Sadducees. Sadducees were both politically and scripturally focused, but very united in their doctrine. They were very much of one accord in their doctrine. They were conservative. They were worldly. They cooperated with Rome uh, just like the Herodians did because they wanted to maintain their status and kind of the power that they had. Now, here's, here's where it gets really important for our study here. Um, they believed that the Torah were the only God-inspired scriptures. Everything else, all the prophets, everything that came after the Torah. Now, what's the Torah? It's the first five books, also known as? You're right. Okay. See, you guys are so smart. Kayla, I knew you'd get it. Um, that's all that they considered God expired. All the prophets, uh, all, the, all the poetry, all the wisdom, everything that came after that, they did not consider Scripture. That's very important for our discussion today. So remember that. Um, any, okay. Any of the other, everybody all right? Whatever that was. Okay. Um, any other, any other scripture was just not accepted by them. They also, very importantly, denied the idea of resurrection of the dead. They didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in demons. These were all kind of core tenets of what the Sadducees believed. The historian Josephus, I talk about Josephus a lot because he's an outside sort of party that verifies a lot of these biblical things we see. And he said this about the Sadducees. He said, because they did not believe in any life after death, therefore there was no judgment, 
No reward, no penalties. As a result, they lived for the moment, for the here and now. At death, they believed the soul perished along with the body. Just think about what it would be like to live life like that. You might on the surface go, okay, if there's no punishment, there's no reward, I could just do whatever I want, whenever I want to do it. But the thought that there's no purpose behind anything, and when you die, you just go back into the dirt. There is nothing after that. What kind of life would that be? I can't imagine. In many ways, I feel very sorry for them. Um, just thinking that the soul perished along with the body at death, and that was the end of it. So that would explain why they did everything they could to live to the live every moment, right? Live your best life, they would, they would say now, because there was nothing beyond that. I think it's a sad way to live, but that's where they are. Let's get into the individual scriptures now because there's so much to unpack here. Um, Mark 12, 18. Some Sadducees who say that there is no resurrection came to Jesus and began questioning him, saying, now, Think about this. I think almost every translation has the parentheses there that says, who say there is no resurrection? Whenever you see something like that in Scripture, pay attention. That's important. Okay, That's going to be important to everything that follows after that. So that's where they are. Keep in mind, these guys, these guys they're questioning Jesus about things they don't even believe in. Okay, They're asking him about, the afterlife, how do things work in the afterlife? Well, they don't believe in an afterlife. <clears throat> they're, they're questioning them about things that they don't believe in. That gives us a clue as to what their motives are, right? All they really want, they don't, they're not asking Jesus to weigh in on how divorce and remarriage works in heaven. They want him to take a stand on their core doctrine that there isn't or there is an afterlife. That's what they're after here. Mark 12, 19, teacher, this is their questioning of him. Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves behind a wife and does not leave a child, his brother is to marry the wife and raise up the children for his brother. Now that's when they're, quote, when they're talking about Moses, they're actually quoting from Deuteronomy. It's important to know that these guys only accept the first five books of Scripture as God-inspired. So whereas we would pull out all kinds of, maybe we would pull out New Testament scripture, but we would pull out maybe something from the prophets to, to verify, and Jesus did that all the time. He can only go to the first five if these guys are going to accept it as authoritative. So what they're quoting from, what they're asking here is straight out of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 25, 5 and 6. Let me read it to you. Just This is how the law of Moses works in this, and they're talking specifically about this death of a husband and the family line, how that works. Uh, Deuteronomy 25, verses 5 and 6. When brothers live together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the deceased shall not be married outside the family to a strange man. Her husband's brother shall have relations with her and take her to himself as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. It shall then be it shall the, <clears throat> it shall then be that the firstborn to whom she gives birth shall assume the name of his father's deceased brother, so that the name will not be wiped out from Israel. This is called a leveret marriage. That the Torah describes that it's called a leveret marriage when you would marry um, your brother's wife. Now they hit Jesus with this 
hypothetical situation. Again, they don't even believe that there is resurrection, but they're hitting him with this question. Again, trying to get him to weigh in. Mark 12, 20 to 22 says, Now, there were seven brothers, and the first took a wife and died, leaving no children. Okay, pretty straightforward. The second one married her and died, leaving behind no children. And the third, likewise. And so the seven together left no children. Either this woman lived to 200 years old, or this, this male stock was not all that strong. Verse 22, and so the seven together left no children. Last of all, the woman also died. Okay, you following along with this hypothetical that they're, that they're talking about with Jesus? Now, here's the heart of their question. Here's what it really gets down to. Verse 23, in the resurrection which they don't believe in, by the way. Which one's wife will she be? For each of the seven had her as his wife. Now, before I get into the answer here, why do you think there was so much attention paid in the law of Moses and this question and all that to to death and remarriage and how that all worked? Why do you think there was that much attention paid to it? I mean, it's written in the law of Moses how this scenario would work. Why do you think there is that much attention? Okay, you don't have to raise your hand, Kayla. It's okay. Why? That's a big part of it. Yeah, land, title, inheritance, um, family lineage, the name of your family would live on. Um, all of those things, yeah, tribal, tribal disputes and tribal continuity, all of those things are part of it. And think about this. It's saying specifically that the firstborn son would be registered as the child of the deceased man. So the child that you would have with your deceased brother's wife would actually be registered as the child of the deceased man in order to continue that, the, the inheritance, the land, the, all those things. Deuteronomy 25, 7 says, but if the man does not desire, listen to this. I love this. I only throw this in because I just love it. That's why I'm throwing it in. But if the man does not desire to take his brother's widow, then his brother's widow shall go. I heard laughing. You know where I'm going. Then his brother's widow shall go up to the gate to the elders and say, my husband's brother refuses to establish a name for his brother in Israel. He is not willing to perform the duty of a husband's brother to me. Anybody know what happens? I'm going to get there in a minute. I'll explain it to you. Gabe? They, they, they label, you are to take the sandal off of your foot and strike him across the face with it and say, from this point forward, your family will be known as the family with no sandals. (laughs) They took it seriously. I just love that. Read Deuteronomy 25 if you want to know about that. Okay. So here, back to the Scripture. The Sadducees, they're suggesting that if there is a resurrection of the dead, this hypothetical woman is going to have seven husbands. So now what do we do? Okay. By the way, the, the best biblical illustration of what this lever message uh, uh, marriage looks like is in Ruth. It's read the story of Ruth and Boaz. 
Back to Mark. Mark 12, 24. Jesus said to them, this is his answer. Is this not the reason you are mistaken, that you do not understand the Scriptures nor the power of God? Now, this is he's striking right at their heart because they thought, especially when you're quoting the Torah, they only had five books. Remember, all the other, the, the poor Pharisees had all the books of Old Testament Scripture. These guys just had five. They better know it backwards and forwards. And Jesus is saying to them, you don't know it. That's striking right at their heart. They prided themselves in being scholarly thinkers. That's, that's who they would have said they are. And just a side note, whenever you start taking pride in your status as a thinker, be careful. Be careful. Because we talk about a lot of idols, and sometimes idols are very easy to identify. A lot of us can see those. But some of those things, like calling yourself a thinker, that can become an idol where we are more focused on thinking things through than living in faith. It's just, I'm not saying it's bad. We just need to be careful. Matthew says this about those people who think a lot. He's actually talking about the Pharisees here. Matthew 15, 14, he says, Leave them alone. They are blind guides of blind people. And if a person who is blind guides another who is blind, both will fall into a pit. You've heard the saying, blind leading the blind? This is where it comes from. Too much thinking is not always good. Mark 12, 25. Okay, he's back to this hypothetical situation. For when they rise from the dead... They neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. So the first mistake that the Sadducees made here in their little hypothetical situation, first of all, talking about things that they don't even believe in, but secondly, they're, they're making this assumption that marriage on earth is going to continue in the same way in heaven. They're just assuming this is how it works on earth. It's going to work that way in heaven. So that's kind of an assumption that they made. They also didn't believe in angels or demons. Okay? If you believe in angels, you have to believe in demons. If you don't believe in angels, you shouldn't believe in demons. They don't believe in either one of these. But when Jesus says, but are like the angels in heaven, angels are created beings. Okay? Angels are created beings. They don't have children. And he's saying we're going to be like them in heaven. Mark 12, 26. But regarding the fact that the dead rise, this is where we get to, this is the meat. So pay attention to this part right here. Mark 12, 26. But regarding the fact that the dead rise, have you not read from the book of Moses? Of course they had. In the passage about the burning bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now, who here's got a King James that they're looking at right now? If you have a King James that you're looking at right now, it might add the phrase, touching the dead. But regarding the fact that touching, that through touching the dead rise, I forgot how it's worded, but it talks about touching the dead. King James is the only one that adds that. That's not in the Greek version of this. King James version adds that because it's referring to Jesus laying hands on people and, and raising them. But that's not in the original translations. Now, Jesus uses this passage from the Torah to confirm resurrection of the dead. He's trying to prove it, and he can only use the first five books when he's talking to these people. So he's trying to use this to confirm that. 
And he says in the passage about the burning bush, because remember, they didn't have them listed by chapter and verse and names. He's saying, remember the story about the burning bush when this happened? So here's the theory that we need to think about. If Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob did not continue to live on, God wouldn't say that he is their God. See, I am the God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob. Speaking in the present tense, he would have said that he was their God. Now, I say that not to tell you that's what I believe, because I actually don't believe that's true. But that's one very, very common theory, and it's based on studying the tense of the words am. Okay, I am versus I was. Now, there's a whole study of apologetics. Terry Cooper does that. We talked about that, where you go in and you look at those things. I like to do word study to help me understand Scripture. But when you study this, it is not a word tense issue. And I can tell you, nowhere in Scripture does Jesus say, well, if you look at the tense of the word and the original translation of this, that's for us. And when we're, when we're doing exegesis on a scripture, it helps us to understand. Jesus is not saying, I'm refuting your argument because of the tense that was used in that passage. That's not what's happening here. The significant part is not the tense that's being used in there. It's the fact that God spoke through a burning bush. Okay, when he pulls, when he pulls that section of scripture to mind for them... He's not saying, okay, let's study out the tense and what was God really trying to say here. He's saying, do you not know that God spoke to Moses and delivered the very law that you're talking about here through a burning bush that did not consume, did not burn up? God is the God of the supernatural. That's exactly what he's getting at here. The things that you think are happening in the natural world, God is the God of the supernatural. And so things don't have to work in heaven exactly as they work here on earth. Things don't have to work any certain way except how God says that they have to work. It's got nothing to do with verb tenses and the law and things like that. It has everything to do with an everlasting covenant. It's a covenant that God has made with us. And it's not bound by time and it's not bound by space. That covenant, anybody know what that covenant's called? It's the Abrahamic covenant. That's from Genesis. It lays it out right in Genesis 12, 1 to 3. Let me, let me read it to you in case you don't remember. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you, and I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you, and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. That's the Abrahamic covenant. That's the covenant that's being spoken about here. When we say, who here has been to a wedding where they say, till death do you part? Okay. When we say that in a wedding, Scripture says the two become one. When two come together, when two are married, the two become one. And when death parts you, when, when you pass into that everlasting life that Jesus offers, you're stepping from this earthly body into a heavenly one. 
And when that happens then, you are bound to Jesus. And so that earthly covenant of marriage ends the everlasting covenant with Christ is the one that takes over at that point. Mark 12, 27, he is not the God of the dead, but of the living, you are greatly mistaken. Knowledge does not equal understanding. Pastor Gabe has taught about that. I've taught about that. These guys here are a prime example of that. They had all kinds of knowledge, but no understanding. And that's what Jesus is questioning him. They're saying, you know it, do you understand it? Because there are many people, I guarantee there are people in this room who know Scripture way better than I do. But do we always understand it? That's why we need to study. That's why we need to be humble enough to realize I may not know it. I'm going to study and see really what the Lord's trying to tell me here. See, the law of Moses, the Torah, was given in order to help us live in a fallen world until the Holy Spirit came. Remember this from Galatians 3.24. So the law was our guardian until Christ came that we might be justified by faith. Okay, with the Holy Spirit, we now are justified by faith. We're justified by faith in Christ. But until then, all they had was the law. The Torah, specifically, that's what they had. And it was there to help live in a fallen world. But so many people think with Christ, there is freedom. Anybody here think that? Yes, there is freedom in Christ. But here's the thing about freedom in Christ it's not easier. It's not anything goes. It's not like the Sadducees, just live for the moment, do whatever, the blood of Christ will cover anything. It's a higher level of responsibility. You're reborn anew into this new family. And the Holy Spirit is the one who helps you live in that family and to understand your place in that family. But it's certainly not easier. What did Jesus teach? He said, you know the law, but I'm telling you, it's even harder than that. If you even look at somebody with anger in your eyes, you've committed murder. The law was so much easier to follow because the Holy Spirit goes right to your heart. So let's wrap this up. I'll try and make sense of all this, right? Let's go into a couple of the questions just really quickly. How many the concepts and the questions we talked about at the beginning? Is there resurrection of the dead? Okay. And, and if we don't have to limit ourselves to the Torah, there are hundreds of both Old and New Testament scriptures that document and to talk about resurrection of the dead. Are there angels? Yes. Are there demons? Absolutely. If you've been married, if you've been married multiple times, who will you be with in heaven? Jesus. Jesus. I love you guys. You guys are awesome. Good answer. Will you be married in heaven? To Jesus. Think about this. What's, what's the earthly purpose of marriage? What's the purpose of, of marriage here on earth? Procreation. Okay. You guys are smarter than the Wednesday group. I had to pull that one out of Wednesday group. And, and, but maybe they're a little bit more holy because they're saying it, it's, a, it's a type and a shadow of our relationship with Jesus and the, and the covenant with Jesus. That's, that's what it is. It's to help us understand that. That's what the reason for it is. 
in heaven, we'll be with Jesus. We'll be united with Jesus. There'll be no more need for procreation. We are there. So that earthly design of marriage is not going to be necessary. We will have a higher connection to Jesus then. Last one, and maybe the most important for, for many of us, will you even know your loved ones in heaven? Yes. How do we know that? There's a lot of scripture that talks about that, right? So, and there's, there's dozens, but let me just share just a couple quick ones with you. Matthew 26, 29, Jesus says, but I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now until on that day when I drink it with you new in my father's kingdom. He's talking to the disciples there saying very clearly, we will be together and we will be sharing this anew. Luke 23, 42 and 43 This is Jesus on the cross. And remember, he's with the two other criminals who are being crucified along with him. And he was saying, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. 43, Jesus replies, and he says to them, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. You will be with me. So yes, we will know our loved ones when we get to heaven. This is, that's a question. I just bring that up because that is, is a very common question. Now, let's go back to the very, the very crux of this. When it starts out in the scripture, it says, the Sadducees who do not believe in the resurrection. That should be our hint that that's really what this passage is about. If the resurrection can be disproved, let's start with the resurrection of Jesus Christ, not even the resurrection of the dead in, in times to come. The resurrection of Jesus Christ, the power of the gospel is no power at all. It hinges on the resurrection of Christ. Our belief in a future resurrection of the dead is central and it's vital. And we can't leave that behind. We can't take that out. There are people who I've spoken to who say, yeah, I believe in Christ and I believe in all these things. I just can't get past that resurrection from the dead part. It is, it is vital and it cannot be separated from the gospel of Jesus. It is the gospel of Jesus. Now, a couple quotes here. Theologian Timothy Keller, some of you may know him. If not, he's got a lot of really good stuff. But he says this, if Jesus rose from the dead, then you have to accept all that he said. If he didn't rise from the dead, then why worry about any of what he said? The issue on which everything hangs is not whether or not you like his teaching, but whether or not he rose from the dead. That is is number one. C.S. Lewis, my favorite quote machine, says this. He says, The New Testament writers speak as if Christ's achievement in rising from the dead was the first event of its kind in the whole history of the universe. He is the first fruits, the pioneer of life. He has forced open a door that has been locked since the death of the first man. He has met, fought, and beaten the king of death. Everything is different because he has done so. It's not scripture, but that should get an amen. Now, I will bring you some scripture. Paul the Apostle said this. 1 Corinthians 15, 12 to 14 
And then a little piece from 17. Now, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how does some among you say that there's no resurrection of the dead? But if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. Your faith also is in vain. Verse 17, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Are we not thankful that Christ has been raised from the dead? So that we are not dead in our sins, we are alive and born again. The real question, will you be like the Sadducees and know the scriptures, but still deny the power of God? Will you be like that? And it's a choice we get to make. Or will you let the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus Christ make your life different? That's what it's about, isn't it? A new and a different life. The path that we were on, all of us before Christ led to death. And through him, we are on a different path. Victory over death, sin, the grave, chains of bondage, broken, risen with him into a new life. Amen. Here's the biggest problem, though. No one can make that choice for you. No one can make that choice for you. You can know it like the Sadducees. You can know it. You can know the Scriptures. You can have heard the Scriptures. You can quote them back. But until you decide that you're going to surrender everything and say yes to Jesus, then you are literally denying the power of God. And you are like them that say, I'm just going to live for the moment because there's nothing beyond this. Church, that is not a life I want to have. It costs you nothing, but it will require you to give up everything that you are. Now, before I pray, um, baptisms. We're going to do baptisms immediately after this. If you're here and you're saying to yourself, you know, I've known who Jesus is my entire life, but I've never let go. I've never said I'm done trying to figure it out for myself. I'm done just trying to live for the moment and hoping for the best. I need the assurance that I'm promised in Christ that I am a new person, set free with a new life and a new identity and a new future from that day. I need that. What we do, Paul said it, confess with your mouth and believe in your heart. It's not a big process. And getting baptized is the confirmation of that. Getting baptized doesn't somehow transform you. It is a public declaration. It's a public demonstration of something that has already happened in your heart. And so if you're here now, and maybe it's the first time you've ever made that decision, I invite you to say yes to Jesus. Stop running from him. Stop saying, I know all about him, and that's great for you people, but not for me. We make that knowledge an idol. And we would rather sacrifice our lives on that altar of knowledge than to just give it up and give it all to Christ. It's your choice. And so when I pray, if you're here and you want to make that decision, then just be bold. Say yes. 
That's all you have to do. If you want to go an extra step and be bold, you can raise a hand. You can come up here and you can get prayed for. You can go down and be baptized, whether it's the first time you've said that or the hundredth time that you've said yes to Christ. That public declaration in front of a body of believers is huge. But the decision is yours. No one's going to twist your arm. No one's going to make you. But the consequences are eternal. And only you can make that choice. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for who you are. We thank you for who we are to you. No matter what we think in our minds about our value and our worth here on earth, you say that we were holy. You say that we were set apart. And you loved us enough to send your son for us. And God, so it's nothing that I have done that makes me worthy. But it's everything that your son did that says I am worthy. So Father, I set aside all of my preconceptions about being unsure, all of my hesitations about, I just don't understand how this works or how that works. And I give it to you. Lord, touch my heart. Make yourself real. And I will follow you forever. Lord, you are so good to us. We praise you, praise you this day and every day. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Folks, we're going to take communion together now. Communion is another beautiful way to say yes to what Christ did for us. We have two stations here. We'll have one over here, and we'll have one over here, and we'll have wine, and we'll serve you there. You just dip the, the bread or the cracker in the wine. We also have self-serve here with juice. If you'd rather serve yourself, you can do that over at the station by the window. But doing that, every time we take communion, you don't have to be a member of this church. You do have to say that Jesus is your Lord and Savior because when you take communion, you're saying yes to his sacrifice. You are saying, yes, I accept. I accept what you did for me the broken body, the blood shed of the new covenant. So I'm no longer bound by the law, but I am bound to you, Jesus. And it's a higher calling. And so when we take communion, we are saying yes, and we are reaffirming that that is a calling we accept, and we accept his sacrifice. So as the worship team plays on, we can move around. You can take communion. You can pray if you want to pray for one another. Let's do that. If you are saying yes to Jesus Christ right now, then I'd like you to either find me or find one of our members of the prayer team who will be in the back. And we can pray with you. We can talk to you about what's happened and what the next steps are. And we can help you through that. And then if you're feeling that tug, no matter where you are in your Christian walk, if you're feeling that tug to be baptized, I want you to say yes to it. I want you to be bold enough to say yes to it. It's warm. This isn't February where we're asking you to go outside in wet clothes. It's going to be great. But say yes to that. If, if the Holy Spirit's pulling in your heart, I don't want you to get home and say, I should have. Be here, be in the moment, be present today, and say, I will. Amen? Thank you, guys.